come to, we're going to read God's word and then we're going to pray. This is a psalm from David and he writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray back your word to you. We know that you are the good, the awesome, the mighty, the powerful, the righteous, the omniscient, the omnipotent God of the universe. And as David said, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And God, we pray that you would bless your words now, these words that we just read, that they would bring blessing to us. God, would it please you to pour out your spirit upon us that we would continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servants be blessed forever. God, that is our heart. That's our desire, that you would bless us in the hearing of your word, which is more powerful than we could ever imagine. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Vaughn Roberts. He is a, uh, he's from the United Kingdom. He's a conference speaker. He's a kind of a Christian apologist, and he goes on circuit tours, speaking at the various campuses and colleges around the UK. He said something I think we all can agree with. He said, the world is changing fast. And he continues saying, and this change is not just politics, technology, and communication, but our whole culture, morality, and attitudes. He says, Christians living in Western culture have enjoyed the benefits of being in a world which largely shared assumptions about what is fundamentally right and wrong, good and evil, righteous and wicked. We can no longer assume that is the case. In two short generations, we have moved in a widespread adoption of alternative values, many of which are in conflict with the teaching of God in the Bible. Does anybody else feel that? There's a conflict. We can all feel it, right? This conflict between competing values, competing value systems, between two competing sets of assumptions, two competing visions for culture, and that feeling is not just shared by religious folk, by Christians, but it's actually also shared by seculars, 
by people who write in secular newspapers like the New York Times. In fact, one New York Times columnist put it this way. He said, we are in the throes of a generational shift. These are not normal times. There is a deep spiritual crisis the West faces, and it is worse than anything since the 5th century fall of the Roman Empire. Christianity has been routed, and it is surrounded on all sides by a powerful enemy who holds the high ground in the initiative. So there you have it. You have a Christian speaker and an apologist. You have a New York Times secular columnist saying essentially the same thing, that we're living in the midst of a generational shift, a spiritual conflict. And you can see this conflict actually on display in the public sphere oftentimes. Just five years ago, one candidate was put up to hold a position in the Office of Management and Budget. His name was Russ Vogt. And Russ, some 10 years before that, had wrote, a blog post, an opinion piece defending his alma mater's position that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And Russ, uh, before he took this post in the Office of Management and Budget, had to stand before the Senate and do a confirmation hearing. One senator said to vote, in my view, the statement made by Mr. Vote is indefensible, it is hateful, and it's religiously intolerant, and it is an insult to billions of people with different faiths throughout the world. And I'm not going to mention who the senator was, but he started his remarks uh, during this committee by saying, this country, since its inception, has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to overcome discrimination in all forms. We must not go backwards. I actually know people personally as well that live through this conflict. They live through this tension. Uh, one person who's my relative, he got a job as uh, really high up in this, in this management of a nationwide company, and he quickly realized that the values of his faith on the issue of human sexuality and the values of his work culture were, for the first time in his professional career, fundamentally at odds with one another. And he said, should this company ask him to publicly, exp publicly express their views, he said it was almost certain that it would lose him his job. So, we're in the middle of this conflict. We all feel it. And it's easy to believe, though, that this generational shift or this conflict is something that's unprecedented. It's easy to feel that what's happening in 21st century America somehow has never happened in history. It's unique to history, and what we're experiencing is fundamentally new. And this, this is where the Psalms can be so instructive. We've been in the Psalms for the last two weeks, and we can be tempted to think that these Psalms were intended primarily for us, that they were written primarily for us, and we think they have just kind of vague, general, spiritual wisdom for all the certain things that we feel in our life. So when we go to the Psalms, we treat them a lot like an iPhone or an iPhone commercial. Remember the iPhone commercial? There's an app for that. You remember that? Where it's like, hey, do you want to know what the weather is in St. Louis? There's an app for that. Do you want to know how much snow has fallen in Vail? There's an app for that. So we think, well, I'm feeling spiritually depressed or I'm feeling down or anxious. We say, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 23, Psalm 42, Psalm 88, there's a psalm for that. Or sometimes we feel joyful and worshipful and we say, well, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 145 through 150, it's all about praise. You get the idea. But... 
Even though psalms can be used in giving us expression, giving us words to express our faith and what it is that we're feeling spiritually, that is not their main purpose. And we are not the main audience of the psalms. The psalms were Israel's psalms. They belonged to Israel. And if anyone understood the conflict of a changing world, the conflict of nations and rulers and people in spiritual crisis, if anyone could understand the conflict that we're facing today, it was ancient Israel. In fact, the setting of Psalm 2 shows us conflict. The background of Psalm 2 begins with nations raging in conflict. David writes, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here you have David. This is the most powerful king of Israel, and he's speaking here, and he's saying, the nations are raging, people are plotting, foreign kings and rulers, they're conspiring together, they're all conspiring together against God and his anointed king of Israel, me. It's constant conflict. You see this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, especially in the historical books of the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you see this conflict played out. Surrounding nations like the Philistines or the Moabites or the Ammonites would oftentimes make raids against outlier cities in Israel and they would steal possessions, they would steal crops, sometimes they would even carry away women and children. Other rulers would come and they would besiege cities in Israel. They would surround the cities. And sometimes for several years, they would slowly and painfully and meticulously starve out the inhabitants of the cities, bringing them ultimately into submission and surrender to their foreign rule. Or maybe the greatest conflict in the Old Testament, this came several hundred years after David was king and he had written this psalm, but it no less applies. The foreign nation of Babylon, which was the most powerful nation in all the earth during that time, came in the year 586 BC. They surrounded Jerusalem, the holy city where David himself resided when he was king, and they burned down the walls of the city. They completely leveled the temple and they drug countless Israelites into captivity and into foreign exile. It is those conflicts that prompt David to write. Why do the nations rage? Why do these kings conspire and counsel together against the Lord and against me? So don't you see? These are Israel's psalms. These are King David's psalms, and they were part of Israel's story as the people of God under the special protection of God. But if you probe a little deeper, this is what I love about the Psalms as well. If you probe a little bit deeper, there's even a bigger story going on. You guys know the conflict in Vietnam, the Vietnam War. Remember, it was between the northern Vietnamese and the southern Vietnamese. And if you zoomed in, that's what you thought the conflict was about. But if you zoom out, was that what was really going on? It was actually about Western powers and Soviet powers fighting a proxy war in a foreign country. Or you think about your own marriage. Zoomed in, what starts out as a conflict about how to fold the hand towels in the guest bathroom, nonetheless. <laughs> Zoomed out is actually about something much bigger, isn't it? And if you've been married for more than three and a half months, you know what I'm talking about. 
For those of you who are in month three, consider yourself lucky. (laughs) When you zoom out from the specifics of Psalm 2, you see, wait, there's another layer to this. Something much bigger is going on. And it's a conflict that has its roots down deeply in something that began all the way back at the beginning of creation. All the way back in the book of Genesis, where Adam, the first human being created by God, much like the kings of Israel... He was given a land, a good world created by God. And much like the kings of Israel, this land was to be taken care of by him, to be stewarded by him, to uh, obey God in by, uh, by his rule and his reign. But one enemy, one foreign plot, and conspiracy against God and against Adam undertaken by Satan, the serpent himself, invaded and raged against God's good world, took God's people captives to sin and death, and took God's people and God's good creation, and took them out of the realm of the kingdom of God, and made this world the realm of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And now if you're familiar with the story, you know that God speaks back against Satan, against his infiltration of God's good world. You see it in Genesis chapter 3. God looks at the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, and he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That enmity, right? You You hear that. That's conflict. What he's saying is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness will always continue until one thing happens, until another offspring comes. And we're told that this offspring shall crush the serpent's head. He shall crush your head. What God is saying is in spite of the conflict... There will come a future king, a future anointed one, who is better than Adam, who will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush sin, darkness, and death once and for all. So now return to Psalm 2. Zoomed in, is this psalm about Israel? Yes. Is this psalm about David? Yes. But zoomed out, this raging conflict and rebellion is much greater. It is a conflict between God His Messiah, Jesus himself, his anointed one, it is against Jesus who is the son of God and king of the universe. That is the great conflict. And here's what makes this conflict extremely divisive. If this conflict was just about Israel and ancient kingdoms that would raid Israel periodically, then we could say that this didn't really have much relevance for us today. But because this conflict is actually just a zoomed-in expression of a much greater conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, what this means is that we are all in this psalm. We are actually all in one of these two kingdoms. Every single person that's ever existed. From the creation of Adam and Eve, through the time of Israel, through King David, through the time of Jesus, through the last two millennia, up to the present day, every human person who has ever been given breath by God either belongs to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. Another way of saying this is there is no kingdom of gray. 
right? We often think that we can be outside observers to God's story or God's plan or God's world. We can think, okay, there's the kingdom of darkness, there is the kingdom of light, and I exist somewhere right here in the kingdom of gray. I'm not really sure which one I'm part of. The Bible makes it clear, Psalm 2 makes it clear, the rest of the story makes it clear that you belong to one of these two kingdoms. Jesus spoke this way all the time. Jesus would often say things that were very divisive, saying things like, you are either a part of my kingdom or you are not. You will submit to me or you will rage against me. Jesus put it this way one time in a parable. This was in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are either rooted in who I am and you are like a tree that bears good fruit. This is Matthew chapter 7. You either bear good fruit or you are not rooted in me. You are not rooted in God's word. You're not rooted in God and you will bear bad fruit. Sometimes we can look at that and say, well, that seems really divisive, Jesus. Good fruit, bad fruit, why not? Okay, yeah, you have a honey crisp apple on one side and you have a crab apple on the other side. What about a Macintosh, Jesus? Or what about a Red Delicious? No, Jesus says there is stark clarity, good, evil, black, white, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. You belong to one of them and we don't like that stark level of clarity. Right, anybody ever seen the movie Crash? All right, nobody, won three Oscars, but good job. All right, <laughs> three couples start out in the movie, these three couples, and when the plot begins, two of these people are on the good side, or you would think that they're on the good side, and this other couple, they're on the bad side. And as the movie progresses, all of a sudden you start thinking, okay, this couple that was good, Oh, they seem to kind of be moving toward the bad. And this couple that was in the bad, they started moving toward the good. And you're left scratching your head, this, this gray area, who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong. I guess we can never know. It's all gray. Not according to the conflict of Psalm 2. That might win Oscars, but it's not true to reality. See, because the Bible says there is no kingdom of gray. It's either our kingdom, which is the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of the Son of God, his anointed one, the kingdom of light. So here's maybe a question that we can ask ourselves. This would be a very important question to ask ourselves. How can you know which kingdom you belong to? Or maybe a more direct question is, how would you know if you are a member of the kingdom of darkness? Well, you can see in verse 3, this is where it's helpful to have this open in front of you, you can see that the nations actually say something. Humankind who is raging against God and these kings and rulers who are taking counsel together against God, they speak, and here's what they say. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, God, thank you for creating me, thank you for giving me life, but if you're going to start telling me commands, if you're going to start telling me how I should live my life, I will not be bound by you. That is, to live in the kingdom of darkness is to desire above all else individual and personal freedom from any constraint of God or Jesus. And the evil one, Satan, his greatest goal is to make us think that the constraints, the commands, the laws of God, they're not for our benefit and welfare. Rather, they're for our enslavement. They're like bonds. They're like cords of slavery. He means to deceive you into thinking that you know what, my way of doing things, my way of living life, my way of making decisions, my ethical code, my personal view of God, that is the right way. Those are the right views. And what we need in life is more individual freedom and personal autonomy. 
That is the indelible mark of a person who belongs to the kingdom of darkness. So how do you know you belong to this kingdom? Well, how do you respond to the king, king's commands? How do you respond to the commands of Jesus? Jesus once said this. He was actually being tempted by Satan. Jesus said, quote, You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. And maybe you hear that and you think, well, why should God tell us who to worship or how to worship? After all, I, I know many good people and they worship the God that they've decided for themselves and that seems to be working for them. How can you insist on one way, God? People should have the individual freedom to follow the God of their own choosing, the God who works for them. Or maybe when you hear about what God says about marriage and sexuality, you say, well, why should God tell me what to do with my body? Why should God... Tell me who I can sleep with and who I can't sleep with. After all, I'm a consenting adult. I have affections and I love another person. How could God insist on lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman? Individuals should have personal freedom to live out their own chosen sexuality. See, how you view the commands of God and his anointed one, Jesus, will tell you a lot about which kingdom you belong to. John Milton, I think he uh, summarized this best. He wrote a poem called Paradise Lost. And if anybody read that, I think you're lying because um, it's way too big. Nobody actually reads that. But Satan speaks. Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, speaks. And he hits it right on the nose. He said, it is better to reign in hell. That is, it's better to reign in your own individual kingdom, by your own individual preferences, and your own personal freedom. It is better to reign in hell than to be a servant to the kingdom of heaven. That's what it looks like to rage against God. To choose a life of personal and individual freedom to your own way of life. To desire to burst apart the ways of God and to free yourself from the command and rule of God. And this is a good question for us to ask. What do you think God's response to that kind of plotting and raging for personal freedom, what do you think his response should be? A couple of years ago, Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning was uh, on Saturday Night Live. And uh, it was really funny, actually. He, he was supposed to be like this mentor for the United Way. So he has like six, seven, and eight-year-olds, and he's playing football with them. Right? And he brings him in. He's like, hey, teamwork on three, you know? And it's funny because Peyton Manning is this six foot five, 230 pound Hall of Fame quarterback. And you see these kids trying to tackle him. And he's just laughing because they're not going to be able to take down Peyton Manning. In fact, people on his own team, he's throwing balls at him and hitting them on the back of the head. And they're falling down and blood's coming out of their mouth and stuff like that. And the point is, Peyton Manning, he's just laughing because none of these kids can tackle or compete with him. And even if they try with all their might to run into Peyton Manning, they're not going to be able to take him down. And as the kingdom of darkness rages against, conspires against, sets themselves against the kingdom of God and his king Jesus, God himself laughs. He actually says that in verse 5. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. 
God looks at the raging and plotting of the nations and he laughs. He laughs. He thinks these people think they can outsmart me. This nation thinks that they can avoid the judgment of God. They raise themselves in defiance to God. And God laughs because this uprising does not threaten him in the least. No matter how powerful the uprising, God wins. The emperor Diocletian, he uh, overtook this area. This was a Roman emperor. Diocletian took over this area that was kind of an epicenter of Christian worship and thought. And after taking it over, he wanted to assert his dominance. So what he did is he set up these two massive pillars in the city square. And he had imprinted on them this inscription. It read, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarius, Augusti. Just a fancy way of saying Diocletian, by the way. For having adopted Galerius in the east, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. And now, you don't have to know a whole lot about Diocletian, but I can tell you three things that you should know and you do know. Number one, Diocletian is dead. Number two, his empire, the Roman Empire, no longer exists. And number three, God and his anointed King Jesus are still king over heaven and earth. No plot can thwart God's plan. And it doesn't matter how powerful you are or how much capital you have in this life, that will still hold true. Some of you may have read recently Elon Musk had this Twitter exchange with a Christian. And the Christian said that, he wanted blessings for Elon Musk, and then he hoped that he would follow Jesus. And Elon Musk's response was, thank you for the blessing, but I think hell and God's judgment will be okay. After all, there will be plenty of people there with me. God laughs at our rebellion and our plots, thinking we can somehow escape his judgment or escape his punishment, escape whatever it is he means to do with this world. God laughs at that, even at the rebellion of the most powerful human figures, because they do not threaten him in the least. And did you notice what God speaks back? Notice what God speaks back to these nations. This is verse 6. After he laughs, he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, into the darkness of the kingdom of Satan, God's response is to send his son. To send his anointed king, Jesus Christ, to crush the power of Satan himself. Think about what that means. If there were ever a time when the kingdom of darkness looked as if it was going to prevail in its rage against God and prove successful, it would have been at the crucifixion and death of Jesus. It would have been when Jesus, the Lord's anointed, was crucified on a Roman cross. But in the condemnation, crucifixion, and the death of Jesus, the kingdom of darkness actually overthrew itself. In the condemnation of Jesus, God was forgiving sinners. And he was condemning sin in the crucifixion of Jesus. God was bringing sinners out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And in the death of Jesus, God was crushing the head of the serpent. I love what 
John and Peter say in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter were the earliest follow- some of the earliest followers of Jesus, some of the first ones that Jesus called to himself. And they were arrested. They were arrested by uh, Roman officials who were going to imprison them for basically proclaiming this message that Jesus is king and ruler of the earth. But they get released. They go and speak with the other disciples. And we're told when the disciples heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said in the Holy Spirit, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had pre destined to take place. Only God can do that. Only God can use the evil of Herod, the evil of Pontius Pilate, the evil of the Gentiles, the evil of the people of Israel, and use that evil plot and rage to carry out his plan to destroy the kingdom of darkness and establish his kingdom of light. Only God can lose and die and win. Jesus, God's anointed one, proves that when we rage against God, we rage against ourself and we advance the kingdom of God in the process. So God laughs. He holds them in derision because he has set his king, Jesus. And even in his crucifixion, He defeats the kingdom of darkness. He will not let this world be taken. So you might be asking, okay, if Jesus in his crucifixion destroyed the kingdom of darkness, then why is there still darkness? Why do we still feel the conflict? Why is there still death? Why is there still pain? Why doesn't God fully stop it? Well, notice again, notice in verse 3, man speaks. Humankind that's raging against God and the kings, they speak. Then in verse 6, God speaks. But then in verse 7, the anointed God-man, Jesus, speaks. And Jesus speaks and he tells us what he will do with evil. He tells us what is to come when he comes again to judge the kingdom of darkness. Verse 7, he writes, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's kind of two main characters. There's the wicked witch, her name is Jadis, and Jadis She's reigned in Narnia, this good place that Aslan created, but she's been reigning in Narnia for hundreds of years, and winter has persisted for these hundreds of years. There's no end in sight. There's no light breaking in through the fog and the clouds of winter. All of Narnia is under a deep freeze. But then Aslan appears, and he comes to take back his world. And what Jadis does in response is she mounts her sled, and she starts 
going on her sled to battle Aslan, to have this great showdown, but something strange happens on her way there. All of a sudden, as she's riding, the sun breaks through the clouds of winter. All of a sudden, the snow underneath her begins to turn into slush. You can start hearing birds in the distance. You can start seeing and hearing the rivers flowing for the first time in decades. And all of a sudden, as the grass is coming up through the snow, this green, lush grass, she stopped in her tracks and her sled can't go anywhere. And she screams out in a furious screech, What is happening? And one of her assistants responds back, This is spring. What are you to do? Your winter has been destroyed, your majesty. This is Aslan's doing. Jesus here speaks and he says, he will return to earth. He will take it back. And every corner of creation that is still touched by winter, still touched by the kingdom of darkness, will melt away under his powerful judgment. He will destroy every corner of creation that is plagued by the kingdom of darkness in his second coming. Winter will be destroyed and spring will dawn. His new creation, heaven and earth, will be one. So you look again at verse 1. Remember those nations which raged in verse 1? Well, look at verse 8. It says that they will be given over to Jesus as his inheritance, his heritage. The nations which raged are now Jesus' heritage. In verse 2, the earth, which was ruled by plotting kings against God, in verse 2, will be made the sole possession of Jesus in verse 8. Again, in verse 2, those rulers who took counsel against the Lord and his anointed, We're told that Jesus will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The serpent's head will be crushed. The kingdom will be overthrown. And this is a, it would have been a very familiar image. See, before a king would go out to battle, they would set up this large clay pot and they would take their scepter that they were ruling with and they would smash that clay pot into pieces to show this is the fate of this kingdom that we're going to go and fight against. The kingdom of darkness, like Diocletian, will be no more, it will no longer exist, and Jesus will still be king of heaven and earth. He will take his creation back. And so the question that the psalm leaves us with is, what are we supposed to do? How should we respond to this? And this is what's fascinating about this psalm, is that three people speak. Mankind speaks, God speaks, the anointed, Jesus speaks, but then nobody speaks in verses 10 through 12. And that's meant that, to be that way for a purpose. It's meant to be, what will you say to these things? And so it ends with this plea, this pleading to anybody who will hear it to come out of darkness and place your trust and your faith in Jesus as your Savior and King, to find refuge in him from his coming judgment. It reads, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be wise. Take this warning to heart. David is saying the only refuge from 
King Jesus and his judgment is with King Jesus. When I was, uh, I probably had to be like three or four, maybe five years old, I was staying over at my Uncle John's house. It's one of the first memories that I have. And my Uncle John had this, what to me as a five-year-old was a massive German shepherd. And his name was Ruger. Great name for a German shepherd. Well, Ruger was kind of this trained attack dog. And so he terrified the daylights out of me. And one night when we're staying over at his house, my mom and dad dropped us off there. I think this is what happened, that some burglars tried to break into my Uncle John's house. And all my Uncle John had to do was open the front door. And out comes Ruger, chasing these thieves. And these thieves were quick. They jumped over the fence. Well, Ruger jumped over the fence right after him and chased him down the street. And my Uncle John goes running after him, yelling, Ruger, Ruger. And I just remember this thought, wow, I am so protected here. I got to get me one of these. (laughs) But the next day, this is what I remember most. The next day, as my mom and dad come to pick me up, I go to run out to see my mom and dad through the front door. And right behind me, I hear a low growl. And my Uncle John yells out, why don't you just walk, Daniel? Ruger doesn't like when people run away from him. In Ruger's presence, I was safe. I was secure. I knew he would fight for me. He would protect me. But if I ran, that same dog who was my refuge would be my ruin. The only refuge from King Jesus is with King Jesus. The only shelter from the wrath and the anger of the Son of God and his iron scepter is found under the shelter of the blood of the Son shed on the cross. That's the only refuge from his wrath and power. The only one who can set you free from his anger is Jesus himself because on the cross, Jesus himself was crushed for our rebellion and our raging against him. Jesus himself died for those who are enslaved to the kingdom of darkness and he invites you Come, come ragers, come conspirers, come plotters, come enemies, come. Kiss the son because blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'll close with this quote from James Johnston. He's a Christian author. He wrote, our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. God has set him on the throne to deal decisively with the world's rebellion. There is no refuge from him. Our only refuge is in him. Friends, kiss the son, lest he be angry, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and he will destroy you on the way. But blessed are all who find refuge in him. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, this message, this message of who you are, that you are the God who laughs and derides those who rage and conspire against you. You're the God who crushes the rebellion of the wicked, who crushes the rebellions of our petty kingdoms. This message can sound so foreign to our ears because we're not, we're not used to hearing that you, God of the universe, and your son, Jesus Christ, your anointed king, you are holy and righteous and you will take this world back as yours. God, help us flee and find refuge 
in your son, Jesus Christ, in full recognition that he will win. And he is a gracious and forgiving king. So we can seek blessing in his refuge. God, I pray for those who do not know the refuge of Jesus, that they would seek it, that they would find shelter in it. And for those who have already trusted in him as their king, their savior, their Lord, pray God that this would lead to great comfort knowing that you, Jesus, will return. You will crush darkness. And this, the sin and the death and the brokenness of this world, of the kingdom of Satan, will go the way of the Roman Empire and Emperor Diocletian, who no longer exist, but you, Jesus, reign forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.